matchmaker. spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 Top 300 albums from 1985 to 2015 list, starting with number one and working down. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. So here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about the original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. I will provide two new albums, explain what makes them worthy substitutions, and then Tim will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles albums list. And then we trade places. Tim will have two new movies to talk through, and then I will make my choice for the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I'll have seen the movies, and sometimes he'll have listened to the albums. But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we've finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get to there, we have to do this. Today's titles to be replaced are Sign of the Times and Yankee Doodle Dandy. Tim, I have a question. Mm, yes, those. Why why do we insist on comparing people to Prince? Um is it the is it the next Jordan thing? Like I don't but I don't I don't know that there's like an obvious need for that in music. Like I understand why everybody working for ESPN or whatever did that um until we came up with I guess Kobe or whatever. Um, but for music, I don't understand why anyone compares anyone to Prince. No, that that's beyond me. Right. I don't get it. Like the Jordan thing on the one hand, you're looking for, okay, who's the next big player. That's just going to kind of take the sport over and take it in new directions and make play radically different in their own way. There's that angle, there's the branding angle, there's the who's going to play like Jordan angle. So you have all of those converging somewhere, but right, sports is always looking for that major who's taking us forward. And not that that doesn't exist in music, there are always artists taking it forward, but those aren't always the biggest artists necessarily. Um, and right, we like this idea of singularity, of that artist just just doing something completely their own. But then we mix that with like, well, who's going to be the next one? It's like that defeats the entire purpose of making them seem singular. And especially with someone like Prince, no one is going to be the next Prince. That's the answer. No one can or will do this. And I don't say that to to mean like Prince is the like the teleological end of what music can do. But he, <laughs> he is just so unique 
there's not going to put that label on someone. We shouldn't. I, I'm just I'm of the opinion that we should not harangue a new artist, especially by saying they're going to be the new prince, because that's an unreachable standard. Prince is so well regarded, so known, so ingrained in so many different musical lexicons that, that you can't you can't put that on someone coming up. Now, why why begin with this question and with this mild rant? Well, today's theme, as we replace Sign of the Times, Prince's nineteen eighty seven album, is going to be artist whom I refuse to make analogies to. And what I mean by that is artists that are so unique or just so their own that I think it's actively harmful and even kind of mean to say someone is going to be the next prince, for example. I think certainly music is based on influence. Prince is not immune from this. He's not making things from scratch. Like, <clears throat> this is not ex nihilo creation. He's taking strands of soul, of funk, of uh, psychedelic pop and rock, of electronic, of rock itself, of early hip-hop, and even that forward in some ways. Prince is taking all these threads and tying them together into Prince, into what he does. And with a charisma, and, and I want to talk about this a little bit, that no one else is going to have, and that's what I really think makes it uh, kind of mean to say someone's going to be the next prince. But let's bridge that into talk of Sign of the Times. So this album comes out in 1987. It's the first album after Prince disbands, for the time being, the revolution. And we all know Prince and the Revolution from Purple Rain, the 1984 album and movie. And of course, he has hits all over the late 70s and early 80s. And Sign of the Times is kind of this break in a way it's still thoroughly prince like you're not going to put this on and think it's someone else and that's kind of also what goes into my choice of category here like no matter what he's doing no matter what kind of different genres or styles he's trying to take on and play you're, you're not gonna mistake this for anyone but prince and so but this one's interesting to me because there's not I mean, there are great songs throughout it. It's a, it's a great album, but there's not like the massive single in the way that he had a run of. Um, the title track, I guess, got kind of big, and You Got the Look is probably the biggest single, um, I think, at least commercially, but this doesn't have something like When Doves Cry or like Kiss or like Raspberry Beret or Purple Rain or 1999. Like These aren't the massive singles that Prince has. And so I think it's interesting that it actually ends up third on the spin list. Um, I, I guess I just didn't expect it to end up that high, no can matter we, how can I say a thing well-regarded Prince is or how known he is. What was that? I was just going to say, because oh. I was listening to this again recently, and I had the exact same thought that there is not like a single like iconic, icon like it's Prince, they're all iconic, but there's not like, there's not a purple rain on this one, and I just thought it was incredibly interesting that it was that it was number three for them. But I also had this this fascinating feeling that I get watching a movie sometimes, where I'm where I'm like watching it and I'm like, 
this is a fundamentally great movie, and I understand as I am watching this that I am watching something historically great. Like, it's the feeling I got watching, like, Visconti's Death in Venice or Tarkovsky's The Mirror. Like, that's the feeling I had listening to Sign of the Times the last time I listened to it. Like, you just, you just know while it's happening, which is why I thought this, like, it's a just choice, I feel like for that number three spot, but it, it is very interesting that it does not have the certifiable When Doves Cry style, like, obvious single from it. I think that's right, and I think what's brilliant about Sign of the Times is that, like, this is everything Prince has tried, everything he can, would do. Like, this is sort of the epitome of what he can do as a musician. And... He's incredible, and here's probably my favorite fact about this album. I think there are four occasions on in which someone else is playing in the recordings of these songs. Otherwise, it's all Prince and a drum machine. Like, <laughs> right? We call him a guitar virtuoso, rightfully so, but dude could play anything he wanted, needed. You put him in a recording studio... And he's going to make whatever sound is in his head. And it's just, it's baffling to me to think that an album this stuffed, and I mean that in a good way, is basically one person playing. This is all Prince, besides a few guest spots. Um, and that's that's just incredible to me. And I think on Purple Rain, we hear he's really trying to take rock and make that his own thing. And Sign of the Times is just everything coming together, right? If there's no Prince, there's no Minneapolis sound. Um, and this to me is sort of the, <clears throat> the climax of that, of all the soul and the funk and the uh, <laughs> lounge music, which we'll get into a little bit, because I think that's important here. And the electronic influences, like all of that coming through just as much as what Prince can do on his guitar, which is nothing short of incredible. But yeah, it doesn't have that major single on it, but there's so much different fun stuff happening here. Housequake is this like block party jam and super funky and like I, that one just gets you going and it, it incorporates sort of call and response thing. Like it feels like you're being sermonized at to just get on the dance floor and go. Um, <clears throat> you Got the Look is probably feels the most 80s on this but i don't mean that as a bad thing like it has those really synthy drum sounds and it's it's led by kind of one of those darker synth melodies like it's a really good song but it sounds more electronic than anything else here i think and kind of sounds of okay well this is big right now in the music scene i'm going to take this and just make it mine uh, sign of the times the the first track and um, is kind of a standout in that I've seen it described before as like Prince's take on the message or like his attempt at one by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And it is sort of this just elucidating of the, the sign of the times of kind of culture and street culture in particular at that moment. Uh, you know, like it's really hard to make that type of song work. You have to be a very specific type of artist. And Prince is one of those where that's like that's a very good song um that might be 
maybe my favorite on the whole album, and I, I think that's probably a basic thing, but it's just, that song just really does it for me. But I mentioned that Housequake in particular, it feels kind of like a sermon, and this is why... Right, no one has the the exact instrumentation prowess that Prince does. No one has the mind that's bringing together all these different genres in the same particular ways. But Prince himself, that's what we're not going to see again. So that ability, I feel like most of Sign of the Times is kind of a concept in a way, in that it feels held together. I feel like Prince is singing all of these things to me in kind of a lounge setting. And that like you can visualize him the whole way, just prowling the stage, prowling the the room, and just crooning all of these things at you. Um, and where this really comes together, I think, is if I was your girlfriend. And I'm just gonna say it like this: no one can be as sexy as Prince. If you just read the lyrics to some of the spoken words interlude and uh, outro to that song, if you just read them, my God, they're dumb. And no one else is going to be able to pull those off. But when he's on his game and when he's going, that's the sexiest and most seductive stuff you hear. And I think that's... This isn't new. We know this about Prince. This, this is what Prince does. But I think that really comes through on this album where there's just a persona here that whenever we, someone's going to be the next Prince, that's something we should be reckoning with. And you can't put that on anyone. No one has that same sensuality to them. And no one else can pull off some of the, the lyrics and moments that he does on this album. You looked like you wanted to say something at me. Oh, well, well, all the things you were saying about if I was your girlfriend, I was having the same thoughts about Hot Thing. Like, that one is, is one where That's... I was definitely getting the same vibe. I'm just like, this feels personal? And, like, I, I've not met this guy, and he does not know me, but, like, this this feels very personal and intimate. Um, and and it's just very interesting that, like, I, I think we are discussing a very similar set of feelings about the album and a similar set of experiences, but this album is so stuffed, as you say, that, like, you can feel that thing in multiple places and it's not just, like, you have one shot to get it across. Like, this is an 80-minute album that is absolutely filled with, like, these incredible chances uh, to get whatever feeling across that he's going for. And... Like, it's not that I didn't feel it, and if I was your girlfriend, I just felt it first in Hot Thing. And, like, that's a that's a, a sign of the virtuosity as well. This is a true auteur. Like, someone who, between the, the making of, of, all the, of all the pieces of music by himself and making all the music by himself and, and the performance thereof, like, this is someone who really is in charge of, of the entire experience in a very total way that I find very attractive. Yeah, this is Prince full glory, really. And I like the way you said about you could feel those things at different times. You could feel it at It, which is probably the like most wildly horny track on this whole thing, which is saying <laughs> something. Uh, um, 
um, or Slow Love, which oh man does legitimately, which does legitimately feel like a lounge song. And white people everywhere, I beg you, don't try it. <laughs> don't don't do it. And you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but that song just oozes sex, and that's true of so much Prince stuff. And I think that's true of Sign of the Times in particular. So when we say someone's going to be the next Prince. You have to think about all that together and realize, no, no one's going to be. And it's unfair to say that. And to that end, I I, I think if we say someone's going to be the next so-and-so, it's just unfair to everyone involved. So with that in mind, we're going to talk about two artists who I think if you say so-and-so is going to be the next this person, it's an unfair analogy just because they're so unique in their own way. So we're going to talk about David Bowie and Joni Mitchell. For David Bowie, we're going to talk about his 2016 album Black Star, which ended up being his final album, and we'll talk about why that's important in a moment. And for Joni Mitchell, we'll talk about her 1991 album Night Ride Home, which is released in what's generally considered kind of her fallow period in so much as she has one, um, which I think is unfair in its own right because I actually like some of the 90s stuff. But we'll get to that. Let's talk about David Bowie first. I think with Prince, probably the most common, oh, so-and-so is going to be the next Bowie. And you have to just look at that at face value and say, no, 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 they're not. <laughs> that's that's what made Bowie so special. <laughs> um, we know about Bowie. No one needs to, No one needs me to tell them how great Prince or Bowie could be or how important they are to music or how just insanely creative Bowie's 70 per- 70s period was. Um, but let's talk about Blackstar. Two days after he releases this, on January 8th, 2016, Bowie dies. Uh, he had liver cancer, and it's assumed that he had it for a while, or at least was dealing with illness for a while. And somehow that never got out which I still think is amazing that that never leaked. Black Star is an album uh, consumed by death in a way and trying to work through that and mortality and legacy. And I, to me, this is analogous to that, that trope of a, an actor, an actress so committed that when they die, it's going to be on camera. And Bowie releasing this two days before he dies, this album being so clearly focused on mortality and legacy, this is in effect him dying on stage in as much as he could. And maybe that's unfair of me, maybe that's just reading uh, too much into that coincidence, but right, this is part of what makes him special. It just feels like that was... In- that was purposeful. It just feels like that was intentional that he had decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to be away soon. We're going to release this. And I think if anyone was going to die on stage, as it were, it was going to be Bowie. Uh, that his entire career was performative in that way. He has so many different personas, so many different identities, and had morphed his style so much that this was fitting in a way like this is how Bowie goes out that this is this is right for him um 
and that's incredibly sad to say. Like, it's still sad that he died. He was only 68. Um, liver cancer is, I've, from all I understand, deeply, deeply terrible, um, like especially painful. Uh, and... <clears throat> Right, he gives us this final kind of recorded gift, and then he's and then he's gone. So part of my my argument here for why I don't make analogies um, to the, to these artists is that I don't see anyone else doing that, not musicians anyway. Um, and even if it is coincident for it to be tight, like this, just feels like the summation of his career in a certain way that it wouldn't feel that way for, for someone else. I don't think even if it was Prince, it wouldn't feel the same. Like this feels like how Bowie was supposed to go out. Um, the album itself is honestly just really interesting and good jazz. Uh, he <clears throat> condensed the, the musicians he was working with. I think he was working with about four different people and really the stars of this besides Bowie are the drums and the saxophone. Um, and he did bring in a fairly renowned saxophonist, Donnie McCaslin and the drummer, Mark, uh, Guiana. I think those two are just incredible throughout this. And this is really tight and sort of spooky, uh, not ethereal, but like very heavy hitting jazz music. And it, it knows this, how to shift between like, let's sort of do a light patter. And then Yana in particular, like he just knows when it's time to hit and when it's time to come in rollicking. But sorry, what were you going to say? Just sort of thinking that this has like this very licorice kind of quality. It's very dark and it's got this, this very deep feeling to it. It really did not, it really did not feel like much of the music I had like listened to from him before. Like there, there didn't feel, there didn't seem to be a feeling of like irony to undercut it or staginess to undercut it. There was something very bleak and serious about the whole album that just, I don't, it just, it just hits really heavily. It, it has a, a very strong punch. Yeah. And, I mean, this is not a new discussion, but <clears throat> right. What makes music heavy is it, you know, you have that pounding metal dirge or is it something more ephemeral, like the, just the mood of it, or, you know, is it the voice work or is it just, uh, kind of the tone, uh, like it could be very, very light music itself, but it's the tone of it altogether. Like Johnny Cash's version of hurt is regularly put up as like, this is heavy, but really it's just cash and a guitar. Um, so what does heavy mean? And I think black star really taps into that, that question because the music can be heavy. Uh, it can be pretty, uh, pounding and almost haunting jazz in places. But I think, right. The subject matter is also contributing to this. And I think Bowie too, and just what he's doing with his voice here really adds to that heaviness. He, there are a couple times where we hear some of those like old school screams or like um, not yelps because that sounds bad, but like when he when he pulls up into that falsetto and it feels like it could break, but it also feels perfect at the same time. Like you, you get those at a couple moments, but really he's working with the lower register of his voice and. 
I think that's really interesting. I mean, he's, he's doing that in some of his other later work, but it really comes through here as like an extra instrument, as like an extra bit of power that he's kind of lost some of that voice. He um, sounds old. He sounds I mean, like everyone would at 68. Like, that's what you expect, but he's really working with what he has now and finding a new way to recreate them and to make it into a new persona, which is what he's always done in his career. I thought I cut you off again. No, no, that was it. My, my entire take on that is that he sounds old. He does. <laughs> he sounds old, and you can tell like there's a lot of wear and decades of tear on that. And as we all know, there are a bunch of drugs in that equation too. Um, but he's finding a way to make that into, this is the next evolution of Bowie, really. Uh, the final evolution as it would turn out to be i said this is an album focused on death and legacy right you can hear that in the music um i like the description of sort of the licorice quality like he had worked with jazz before this is not something new but really goes in on it here these are even if you take the vocals out of it these are just really solid songs but they have that kind of darkness to them um there's always that undercurrent of of pain or of uh, kind of blackness beneath all of this and we find especially at the end of the album the last two songs they feel confessional in a way that i don't know that any other bowie songs really do like there's always that remove of okay is he bowie is he uh you know is he ziggy is he the thin white duke like what role is he taking on right now but then you get a song like dollar days where it's kind of about this restlessness and thinking about the british countryside and not being able to go back or or not like just ultimately not going back and then you get the line i'm dying to push their backs against the grain and fool them all again and again i mean if that's not a description of Bowie then I don't know what is that that's sort of his whole career in one line and that's what I think is so powerful about this like it's a death album but it's really self-aware and self-aware in a way that I can describe myself and what I've been doing for decades and decades and right this is going to be my legacy he's essentially tapping into like this is a line that could be written about me in an obituary you know, he's not, not saying that directly, but I think like the, the ways he is able to cast himself here are just, I don't know. I just can't really see anyone else doing this. Um, <clears throat> elsewhere on the album, you get the final song, I Can't Give Everything Away, or the track Lazarus, which came with a, a large uh, video when it came out. And that was when everyone was sort of like, oh, this is big. Like, is he dying? Um and then once he did die shortly thereafter, it was like, that was when everyone kind of agreed that like, oh, he knew. Like, this this was his final thing to us. Um, and there's a lovely little sentiment and verse in there uh, where he says, this way or no way, you know I'll be free, just like that bluebird. Now, ain't that just like me? And I think this is true of his vocals throughout a lot of the albums. Too. Sometimes we hear him kind of rise above it or out or whatever spatial metaphor you'd like to use, but he feels kind of entrapped a lot of the time. Like it feels like, I want to say aqueous in a way, where it feels like he's trapped in something. Like he, 
he's, he's in a bubble or like he's slowly drowning even like you hear that come through in some of the vocals at times and then you get these images of well i could be free on that other side of the glass like that bluebird just free to roam so you know in, in what they in what ways is death freedom in what ways is fame prison and you know what what is your legacy do you feel trapped by that do you feel free by that all these really profound questions that everyone wrestles with but put into this crisp little four-line verse about seeing a bluebird and thinking well i could be free like that um and you get you get moments like that throughout black star um and that it's surrounded by just this really good jazz sort of dark jazz music is a, a a massive bonus really like i don't think anyone expected that for his final turn but uh, it's a really good album that cannot be separated from the context of his death and he's not the only artist with that of course we've done that to other ones but it just this one feels intentional in a way that say in utero doesn't even though we think about that in terms of cobain's death all the time um but this feels like bowie knowing this is the final show. This is the final performance. This is this is me finally being free. The real me, not one of the the personas I've created. And for that reason, I think it's just unfair to really compare anything to this. Um, at least not yet. Anyway, Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell, who we all know from her 70s work i'm willing to bet <laughs> uh which rightfully so she's at the vanguard of those north american singer songwriters in the 70s of sort of that laurel canyon movement she's not thoroughly of that in the same way but she, like kind of with those artists um of course she's canadian which is why i say north american but so are some of the other Laurel Canyon people. So go Canada. Um, Could you imagine the blue if that app. were the national anthem? Instead of O Canada or Go Canada? I think it should be now. <laughs> I should pitch this to Canada. Someone get me on the line. Um, so, yeah, the Blue Album is regularly heralded as like, this is her best, this is her finest, and that, that's right, I think. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a... She has many great albums, but I don't think there's a good case for anything above that. Um, right, This is the album with a case of you, so I think it deserves to be up there. Mm -hmm. um, and then she goes through an 80s, as many of those artists did in the 80s, that seem very wayward to everyone. Um, this is true of Dylan, this is true of Neil Young, this is true of most of those 60s and 70s icons. The 80s was just weird for them. And then she comes back in the 90s with the trio of albums that she released on Geffen Records. <clears throat> and those would be the only thing that she, only thing she released on there. And eventually she bought the Masters. But that begins with Night Ride Home in 1991. And in the 80s, she... I think the general critical take on this is that she was trying to do too much in a way that those albums were too stuffed and like too far away from what, from what Mitchell is 
just really, really, really good at. Uh, and that is, one, her voice, two, her guitar playing, which is just this really unique jazzy style. So, really, like this masterful uh, three, technician, too. Like, we, we started this off with Print, who's this incredible technical player, and, of course, Joni Mitchell is, is also in a totally different way, but also stands out as this wonderful uh, guitar player as well. Like, just listening to her, that, that on its own is a unique experience. Yeah, Joni... <clears throat> Mitchell has a sound that is her. Uh, just the way... And it's in the fingering and the plucking and just the strumming and the ways she actually elicits the notes from the guitar. It's not that she's going on this big showy displays that Prince didn't rely on, but could certainly do. Like when he wanted to just bust out a massive solo, that that's what he would do. Um, like Prince could pull up those fireworks pretty much at will. And Mitchell's not doing that exactly, but just the way she is... Um, kind of caressing those notes from her guitar and then the strumming technique. That's what's really interesting about her lines and really sets her apart. And that in combination with her voice and the ways that she, in a way, I mean, it's basically like her line reading, so to speak, but just the way that she finds new combinations of vocal melodies that you wouldn't really think of before you hear her do them. I think there's a good example in the title track, Night Ride Home, just in the way she sings Fourth of July, Night Ride Home, like just the shift between those two. She runs those together through bars in a way that seems really unique and you hear it for the first time and it's like, no one else would try that, really. And... Again, that's a very small moment, but just something like that, the way she she structures her vocal melodies, I think, is is very unique to her. And I think probably the biggest argument for we should stop you know, trying to make analogies for Joni Mitchell in particular is that I don't really know anyone who's saying, ah, here's the next Joni Mitchell. And that to me seems important, I guess, that like we're not even really trying to make that comparison because we know... This is sort of, this is a singer-songwriter in her own kind of stratosphere, and like, that's her world, that's what she does. She is the best at that, and we should not try and just copy that. But Night Ride Home is not generally as well-regarded as her 70s work, and I understand, but I think there's a lot of good stuff here. And I, when I was re-listening to this, I remembered how some of this was just kind of in my mind, whether I knew it or not. Like the title track and Passion Play, When All the Slaves Are Free, those are two songs that I already knew. And like, there were moments of them that hit. I was like, oh yeah, like that was that was in my brain already. That was in my, my Rolodex of music references. Whether I knew that was Joni Mitchell or whether I knew that was on this album or not. And Come In From The Cold, especially the the chorus of that, that was another moment that was just sort of there. So I think she has infiltrated uh, music in a way that is much more subtle than, say, a Prince or a Bowie. But I think everyone knows moments from Joni Mitchell, even if they don't really know much about her. Uh, and I think that's 
right? That's something very powerful whenever we can say that about any artist, that like they're there whether you know it or not. But those three songs, uh, Cherokee Louise is a great song, um, a, a wonderful storytelling moment from her. And this is another thing she exceeds at, just these song stories and how concise and detailed she's able to make her her narratives in Cherokee Louise is one of the shorter songs on the album. Even it's four minutes, four and a half minutes or so. And she just really excels at that, that storytelling mode. And this is kind of a return to right. A simplicity in the music in terms of what's actually present, kind of stripping that down to, well, it's going to be uh, Mitchell's voice. It's going to be the guitar. It's going to be the occasional p- or piano or keyboard. Uh, we have a couple saxophone solos throughout, which are lovely. Um, and then, and, right, the percussion is sort of doing tone setting more than anything. Like it's a stripping back of a lot of the instruments present uh, and letting Joni Mitchell shine through. And you know, in her writing and her playing and just letting her be what she was on those 70s albums. And I think this is another album focused on aging, on legacy. And I think this really comes through on Coming from the Cold, in which the second verse seems to be a reckoning with not just Mitchell's legacy, but a lot of those 60s and 70s um, singer-songwriters and revolutions that they were a part of and attempting to stoke and hoping to see through and trying to make sense of how that fits into contemporary context. So you get lines, we really thought we had a purpose. We were so anxious to achieve. We had hope. The world held promise. For a slave to liberty, freely I slaved away for something better and I was bought and sold and all I ever wanted was just to come in from the cold. So obviously there we have a rumination on Right, the shift from having purpose, from having hope, from sort of that youthful vigor to what happens when you age and whether it's just that, like that candle gets snuffed out or you realize that it's always going to be suppressed in some way, um, that it feels hopeless at points, that it feels pointless. Um, But really where that verse hits me is just that final line of all we ever wanted was just to come in from the cold and again like but with like bowie with the bluebird imagery that's some it's a very simple image but to me it says so much and there's so much emotion packed into that and right that could be applicable in so many moments and that's the power of all of these artists really that they're taking all of these these touch points that we know and just casting them in some really unique and profound way in a way that feels like oh yeah that could only come from them and when Joni sings that and Tim and I were talking about this before the podcast a bit just listening to this album again it was exactly what what I needed like it just feels so warm listening to this album and coming into her world and just letting her sing and play and just kind of getting lost in the, the much lighter jazz here and there's some comparison to be made, I think, to Tango in the Night. Like, it has that kind of, um, let's say, tropical vibe. Uh, like, Fleetwood Mac was trying to <clears throat> to pull with Tango in the Night. And I think a lot of that runs through uh, Night Ride Home, which does kind of feel like you're taking that warm car ride at night or you're sitting 
hanging out on the porch or um, you're just kind of sitting together and communing and thinking about the past and where you are now. But I would be remiss if I did not mention slouching towards Bethlehem, which is Mitchell's basically just recasting of the Yeats poem, The Second Coming. Speaking of people who make simple images into into these profound, yeah. like, meaningful things, right? Like, that's a very Yeats idea, and there's, there's no one who could do that better than her. Yeah, that's very right. And, like, this song... I, it hits me every time. Like, the beginning of it, I don't want to say that for just the way this thing builds is so powerful to me. And at the beginning, it sounds like, okay, she's taking the poem, she's putting it to music, like, this sounds nice, this is cool. And then it just keeps building and building, and you hear those police sirens at moments, and you hear the drums and the percussion basically sounding artillery fired like at, at the exact right moments in the poem and punctuating the lines and just the way her voice kind of rises and gets bigger and bigger as the song goes like it, it just it's an, it's an incredible building process i think and of putting that yates poem to music and making it sound of yates's time but also of ours i think this just makes that feel so the words in that poem feel so timeless and just recontextualizing it for that early nineties moment where I think you could read that as this is the song right before coming from the cold. So this is right before the rumination on here's what we want. Like we were hopeful, we were hopeful revolutionaries and all we wanted was a warmer world. And that's been, that hope has been displaced. And this is right after slouching towards Bethlehem, where it really feels like a comment on the American empire. And I think only Mitchell can do that in the way that this album does, um, in a way that feels so warm and inviting and even kind of tropical at moments in terms of just soundscape. And the way she can lure you in with her guitar playing, with her voice and with her lyrical structures. And yet, this is one of her most revolutionary albums, I think. Um, I'm not going to put it up to the Blue Album uh, or some of that other 70s content directly, but this is what Joni Mitchell does so well, and this is what she has done so well that uh, with all these exact elements. So David Bowie, Joni Mitchell. We have Blackstar as this final statement from a lifelong performer and seemingly a knowing one where perhaps he finds that bit of freedom and we see a, a music that was important to him throughout his career but really just kind of exploring that finally this very exploratory jazz element of it and this is kind of the record for him for his legacy to set himself up as he passes into the new life or whatever is after and Joni Mitchell kind of this return to basics as we would say but not really, because some can be even more full than some of her 70s output that we all regard so very well, and rightfully so. Um, but her kind of going back to what is necessary, uh, to her voice, to her guitar, to her piano, to that uh, tone and mood setting, 
backing band to those wisely cho- chosen moments to showcase drums and saxophones and guitar solos and all that stuff and taking old material old thoughts and bridging that into new contexts uh, we see that was slouching towards bethlehem and just in general across the album thinking about right what were her goals and her hopes when she was younger and what happens to those now um so yeah thoughts so this is going to sound very interesting i think but it's sort of it, it comes down to what we were saying about prince and the sensuality and i'm thinking about the very sensual nature of the of sign of the times and and how much that sort of stands in as a as a feeling based album at least for me um and boy i really like night ride home a lot um, it's an incredibly enjoyable album. It gives me all the Joni Mitchell things I want. Um, and I also think of it as this really intellectual album. And maybe that's weird because I always think of her as such an emotional person. And, and the two of course can go together very simply. Um, but there's only one of these albums that we described with taste as the licorice thing and the, the feeling as the aqueous thing. So I, I got to go with Black Star for this one. I I haven't been sure since the beginning how I would feel when you actually picked one. Like I really like both of these albums, and I think part of me was hoping for the Joni Mitchell win, but I also fully understand and appreciate the Black Star win, and like I'm glad to have either of them in our reconstituted lists. I guess. Like, this one is just kind of hitting me in a way I didn't totally expect before today, really, where I'm kind of sad to see either one of these go. And maybe I need to find a way to, like, put Turbulent Indigo into some later category <laughs> so Joni gets another shot. <laughs> I think that would be appropriate. It just, this, I mean, I had a similar feeling, too, because I, this is the first matchup in the music ones where there have been two, two musical artists that I felt like a real personal connection to, like... I like Soundgarden and all, but, but like, I don't have like a personal kind of connection to them the way that I have a a more personal connection to Bowie or Joni Mitchell. So this one was, this was, it was trickier for me too. I definitely am with you on that. I I would say as consolation, just everyone go listen to Night Ride Home. Like, I think everyone could use a little more Joni in their life and that's, it just feels kind of right when you put her on and when you kind of escape into the world of one of her albums and there's heavy stuff on there. You know, we've talked about slouching towards Bethlehem. Passion play is also heavy and asks the important question, who does the work when all the slaves are free? And you're going to get those still counterculture ideas and heavy topics throughout. And, you know, Cherokee Louise is also not light. Yeah. Um, but, just listening to her, just I just feel so warm and inviting at the same time, and I think everyone could benefit from that right now a little bit. It's a very it's a very empathetic album, and of course she's such an empathetic uh, performer that that's not surprising. But you definitely there there's a lot of veracity in it that really only only she could do. Like I know that 
it's this is gonna sound stupid too probably but like because they're not the same person and they don't do the same things but i just saw this on twitter earlier today someone was like tweeting the the great like american songwriters and like american i'm sure they meant north american but they were like bob dylan Joni mitchell and who's the third and like i don't know that doesn't seem wrong to me like Stevie Wonder, by the way. Yeah, Stevie Wonder's the right <laughs> choice. I, like, if we di- if Dylan didn't, I don't want to put this. If Dylan wasn't a thing, I think Mitchell is the consensus. Like that's the best singer songwriter of that era. Like, why doesn't um, she have a Nobel Prize? I right, think she's better like, than Dylan. that's what I was about to say. Like, like, I might put her there anyway. Um, I recognize Dylan's importance and all the good stuff he has made, but I don't know, man. There's just something different about Mitchell. And I think this album showed that intellectually and kind of spiritually, she can age better than most of those artists because this is right. It's, still thoroughly her it's still a lot of those philosophies and those ideas that she's had but she's found a way to make those less cantankerous and more this is what happens when you age and how you think about these things differently and try to to gift them to younger generations um and i know several of those artists have had good albums after those 60s and 70s heydays but i don't know man i i think mitchell could definitely be up there at the top um but Stevie Wonder also a very good choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I think it's appropriate that we that that I gave the spot to Bowie, but that Joni Mitchell is still the one we want to talk about. That seems fitting somehow. It's kind of like the last episode where we wanted to talk about uh, Little Women a bit more, but <laughs> just something about the category um, wins again. Category is undefeated. So yeah, we're seeing very early in these episodes how the category is really shining through as this is what we're judging by. So if you doubted we would stick to that, we're we're trying. We're hanging in there. So yeah. So we've talked about major musical artists. What do we got going on with movies, Tim? Alright. So, um Yankee Doodle Dandy. And I realize I don't sound excited, and it's not that I'm not interested in this movie. Um this is a movie that I've seen once. Um, it's it's a very good little musical. Uh, it stars James Cagney as George M. Cohan, who of course is a, a real-life person, or at least was until he died. Um, Cohan wrote every song in existence that wasn't written by Irving Berlin or Cole Porter, basically. like, And I guess Joni Mitchell. The four of them did all the music. Um, but Cohan, of course, is the guy behind I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy, etc. And he's behind Over There, which, I don't know, was basically the national anthem for a 25-year period. So this is a movie which comes out during World War II. America, of course, is involved at this point. And Cohan, who was not really born on the 4th of July, but the movie sure makes it seem like he was, like, is, is this very patriotic... Um, Wunderkind, really. Like, it's it's a cradle-to-grave musical. Um, it's it's a biopic uh, of the old style in which you really do start with uh, with the beginning and go to the end. It, it starts when he's born. Um, 
and and it goes on all the way through his life up to the point in which FDR gives him a medal for his contributions to the country. Um, and Cagney is not in all of it, of course, but he is the, the major figure. He plays Cohan, and the theme of the movies this week is playing against type, uh, because James Cagney is, of course, best remembered as playing gangsters. So he made a name for himself in 1931 with The Public Enemy, which is really, I mean, it, it holds all the way up. That's still an outstanding gang, uh, gangster movie, um, and he is such a force in that. And part of the reason why I think he was such a success in these gangster movies is because there is there's energy just absolutely glowing off him, like thermonuclear Jimmy. The guy absolutely, like, it's hard to cast people near him, honestly, because he is such a presence that he's, like, practically vibrating all the time. And it's it's very difficult to find people who can stand up to him. Um, and, of course, he goes on to do more. He does uh, The Roaring Twenties, another big gangster movie. And his later years, after Yankee Doodle Dandy, he did White Heat, um, which is probably the quintessential... Cagney gangster flick, but he was he was very much first and foremost the guy who who was in the gangster movies. But he also uh, was a trained dance man, um, a really technical tap dancer, uh, a weird singer. Like <laughs> I don't think I don't think any of us can quite imagine James Cagney singing. But he I mean he does the like talk singing thing, which is very effective. But I mean he was he was a great. Uh, show, showman in that way. Um, one of my absolute favorite movies from the 30s is Footlight Parade, which is sort of like 42nd Street. Instead of uh, Warner Baxter being the impresario who's like dying, you have James Cagney as the impresario who is just burning up the entire screen. Um, so it's not like people didn't know he had this in him, but also he like, you know, he, he was showing off a little bit. Um, and, and the movie is very much about the, the rise, and to some extent a little bit the fall, but mostly the rise of, uh, of George M. Cohan. It's an interesting movie. It's, it's um, golly. It's hard, like, it's, it's very much in the tradition of the other music biopics you've seen, even if it's not like them. Um, so, for example, you can draw, pardon the expression, but you can draw a straight line between Yankee Doodle Dandy and Walk the Line. They're framed in very similar ways. Uh, I think Yankee Doodle Dandy is much the better movie. Um, it's got some really terrific dance sequences. They definitely make use of some splendor and grandeur. They definitely have people dancing on treadmills. Um, and it has Cagney, who is really terrific in it. Um, one of my favorite scenes in this movie, or indeed any movie, he is still a young man, but he's playing an old man in a play. So he's got, like, all this old age makeup and this giant beard. And this young woman comes in, and she wants to meet him. And she th she says to him, you know, you're an old man. Um, maybe you can give me some advice about my acting career. Should I go on the stage? And instead of telling her that he's not an old man, he just goes with it. And he's still doing the old man voice, and he's still got the beard on. And at one point, he demonstrates this tap dance for her. And I don't have a better description for it than it looks like somebody plugged him into a car battery. But it's this incredibly frenetic little dance 
in this old man makeup. And it's it's one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen in a movie. And and Cagney is the only one who could pull that off. Um, and it's it's a performance which which I think which I said was technical. Um, part of it is technical in the sense that he didn't dance in the traditional tap style. He danced like George M. Cohan was dancing. Uh, Cohan was known for this very like stiff kneed, almost floppy tap dancing style, and Cagney replicates it, um, which which takes its own level of skill. So this is this is sort of an elite playing against type part. And like one does for playing against type, if you're a big enough star, he gets an Oscar. So this is this is uh, Jimmy Cagney's Oscar-winning performance. Um, you've seen this one, you told me, but it was a long time ago. Yes, I'm. I just can't think of him as not thermonuclear Jimmy anymore. <laughs> I don't Although have anything it, else for him. That's what it's like. No, that is what it's like. like he's a wonderful performer. I think. Describing him as hooked into a car battery at that point is <laughs> right. And that's like, there's an electricity to him um, through a lot of this, I think. Uh, it's it's definitely a very, it's, it's a movie which feels very much of the time. And yet it also definitely has this, um, this I mean, it, it's such a good performance that it's worth seeing on its own. And if you know me, you know I don't care about acting performances. So that's really saying something. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an all-timer of a performance. It's absolutely worth checking out. Um, so I was talking about his Oscar, and this idea of playing against type, part of me just thinks that's a great way to win an Oscar. And at the same time, I do admit to, like, being kind of interested in it. Less because I'm, like... I'm not one of those people who's, like, dying to see someone do something different and then walk out of the theater and say, I didn't know he had that in him. But, like, it's always guys, too. Have you noticed that? Yeah. It's it's a very male idea, this playing against type. Um, and it's always, I didn't know he had that in him. But women just have to, like, dress ugly or something. Like, that's the goal. Um, it, it's just interesting to me because... It, it displays this feeling of not wanting to be what you're known for or what you're good at. So thus, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone spend most of the early 90s doing comedies, or at least trying to do comedies, because they don't want to just be, you know, uh, the Reiner Wolfcastle, right? They want to be... They want to be the funny guy, too. They want to show that they have the, the timing, not just to, like, you know, punch holes in people with their fists, but that they can, like, make you laugh. Um, Will Ferrell like, had that moment. Steve Carell had the moment of the opposite. I know I can make people laugh. Let's see if I can make them cry. Right. The most the recent example of this, which is not actually recent, but like Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems, where somehow suddenly people realized, oh, they, he has this in him. But if you watch Punch Drunk Love, you already knew, oh, he had that in him. But like, there's another example of, right, and he's not going to stop making dumb comedies that are thoroughly of his brand, but like, there's more There's more to these people. Um, I was going to say, too, that the like, Sly Stallone and Schwarzenegger thing of now they're back in the action movies, but they're wink-wink meta action, mm -hmm. where it's like, the joke is that they're still punching holes through people yes. all these years later. Yes, and that's, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about it, which I find, I don't know, there's, I just, I just think there's no shame in being really good at something. 
and that's where I am. And it it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that Uncut Gems doesn't have an incredible performance or that Punk Drunk, Punch Drunk Love doesn't have a better performance. He said, "Tossing bombs," <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but like it's it's also not necessarily the wheelhouse. And there's nothing wrong with having a wheelhouse, but everybody gets gets annoyed that they're painted into a corner or whatever. So I've chosen two movies uh, that I think have really interesting playing against type performances. Um, and I, I tried to do them to not just like a whole body of work, looking back at it and saying, oh, that's weird. But I wanted to choose things that in the moment seemed interesting or unusual. So I went with uh, Ford Apache, the 1948 John Ford movie, in which Henry Fonda's giving a really interesting against type performance. And the other one is more recent. That's the 2008 Gus Van Sant movie, Milk, which stars Sean Penn as the title character, who is also giving a very uh, against type performance. Um, before, we, before we get into Fort Apache, there's two preludes to this. And here, the first one is, um, what's, your, what's your first Henry Fonda movie like connection? What's the first movie you think of him in? Um, put on the spot, I don't know. I guess Grapes of Wrath, probably. Okay, so Grapes of Wrath is number one. What's number two for you? Twelve Angry Men. Okay, that's it, right? Like, the two of those movies are the Henry Fonda uh, course, And, and it's because he is so good at playing these noble, decent men who are not necessarily special, um, who are not necessarily greater than the other men around him, but someone who has this incredible store of decency and wants to see the right thing done. Um, and Henry Fonda, at this point, had been in multiple John Ford movies playing that same part, which I think is so interesting. So we'd seen him in Drums Along the Mohawk as a good, solid American citizen. Not that they were Americans yet, but whatever. Um <laughs> We've seen him the same year in Young Mr. Lincoln, in which he plays the Young Mr. Lincoln. Um, We've seen him in uh, My Darling Clementine, in which he plays Wyatt Earp um, in what is... Whatever, I'm going to gush about what My Darling Clementine in several weeks. We can, we can save that one. What I should have said I thought of, though, is War and Peace, but whatever. <laughs> he, you know, he plays... He plays what's-his-butt. He plays, um... Pierre in War and Peace, which yeah. is again a very a very decent person. Um, over and over again, he's playing these very decent men. And and twenty years after Fort Apache, he gets the famous role in which he plays against type, in which he plays the villain in Once Upon a Time in the West, which is an, an Italian movie and will not come up here. But like twenty <laughs> years before, he's actively working against the type that had made him so famous and so beloved in, in other movies. So that's my, that's my first prelude. Second prelude. Second prelude is the John Ford prelude, because if we're going to talk about types, look, John Ford, this was always going to happen, but John Ford is, in, in my very humble opinion, the best director this country has ever produced. Uh, he, is, he is number one. Um, and I think that's an interesting, maybe even borderline controversial statement right now for a few reasons. 
Uh, one is because the character of his movies, and we can sub that into 1A and 1B, not to try to be Wittgenstein here, but we can, we can like, take that down further. There's always a Wittgenstein to us. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's right. That's so hard. Okay, so the first part... The first part is that he was he's generally considered to be like this genre director. And if you talk to people nowadays, like they're like, no, John Carpenter is an all-time great director. Don't let the genre fool you. But if That's you say that about Westerns, then people are like, oh, they're just Westerns, which I find very interesting that people are always working very hard to make sure that like horror gets in there as a genre thing or sci-fi, but Westerns never seem to, to qualify. Um and not that he only did westerns, but that the westerns are the source of most of his best movies and the ones that he's most famous for. And the one B is that I think because because Ford did so many westerns and because he grew up in a certain time and place, um, there's this perception of him as a racist, which, yeah, but so is Quentin Tarantino and the internet won't shut up about him either. So like you sort of, you sort of have to like look at it and look at the body of work. And I would suggest that somewhere between 1939 and 1948, something very interesting happens in his views about native Americans in particular. Um, so in 1939, he makes two movies. I mean, two big movies. One of them is drums along the Mohawk and the other one is stagecoach, which will not come up here because that was on the 97 AFI list, and thus I am saved from having to use a spot on it. But those two movies both have climactic final scenes in which Native Americans are these whooping, hollering, next-to-subhuman kind of people. And that's, that's very much the perception that one gets from them, and I think it's actually much stronger and drums along the Mohawk than it is in Stagecoach, even though Stagecoach is more famous for it. And in 1948, he makes Fort Apache, which is this very, it's his first movie in his so-called Cavalry Trilogy, uh, which includes She Wore a Yellow Ribbon in Rio Grande, um, in which John Wayne, speaking of an actual real-life racist, um, in which John Wayne plays, plays a cavalry officer in the U.S. Army in the same part of the world, in two movies, he's named Kirby York, except in one of them, it's Kirby York without an E, and in the other one, it's Kirby York with an E. So I don't know what that's about. No one has ever explained that to me. But th that's like, this is the first movie of that bunch. And in this movie, the, the Native Americans are fighting the U.S. cavalry. And there are multiple scenes in here which I find so interesting, because the first one that stands out the agent from the Indian Bureau is very clearly cheating the Indians. He's very clearly trying to make a buck on liquor and guns and not doing any of the things he's supposed to do. And the blame for whatever, like, the Native Americans led by Cochise have, like, run off the reservation, but the majority of the troopers don't blame the Native Americans, they blame the agent. They blame the white guy, and he is very much put at fault. And the second thing that really stands out is that there's the sequence where, and here's the, uh, the inevitable spoilers warning for this movie from 1948. 
Um, but this uh, is... Go ahead. No, I was just going to say... I don't know. I think that's still too recent. Well, I can't wait to talk about milk, or maybe I'll just have to, like, like lip-sync it, because that's real <laughs> recent. Um, in the second scene, uh, which is very late in the movie... Um, he he shows a meeting between Cochise and his top uh, top lieutenants and the Henry Fonda character, uh, Colonel Owen Thursday, and his top lieutenants. And that meeting is basically one in which Cochise is very honorable and and is saying, my only term for going back to the reservation is that you need to get rid of that agent. You need to get rid of that guy who is destroying my people, who is uh, shortening the lives of my young men, who is uh, causing grief to the children and the old people. Like, we're looking, we're looking for a life here, and we don't really want to be on the run fighting you. And Thursday sides with the white guy. And this choice is so obviously one about how dishonorable the white guy is, representing the government at the highest level, and how honorable the Native Americans are. And it's very interesting because that idea sort of trickles through a lot of his other movies and it really, really heightens in Cheyenne Autumn, um, which is, is very interesting, but we don't have to go there. Um, so that's, that's, my, that's my John Ford's race thing, um, sort of mixed in with Ford Apache. And this is, I will not... Uh, gush about him too much longer because like my darling Clementine, it will be here later. Uh, but he is, people talk about cinema being this visual medium, but there are very few other directors in the history of movie making, no matter where they're from or who they are, who understand the spatial quality of the frame like he does, which is why his frame is instantly recognizable. No one can put more people in a frame and have it make sense than him. No one blocked like him. No one understood the, the power of seeing a vista the way he did. He, he, was, he was one of, one of a million. And there, there's a few other directors I can think of who use space quite as well as he does, but he is, he is for me, number one in that, in that realm. So that's, that's my John Ford set of talks. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Um, Your John talk, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Ha ha ha. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, Fort Apache, like I said, it's a, it's a movie about the cavalry. It starts off with this ornery, persnickety, uh, tetchy kind of character, Owen Thursday, who is going to his new outpost, this is a guy who was a brevet general in the Civil War and is now going to the middle of nowhere to maybe fight Indians, probably not. Um, and I have seen Henry Fonda and the world had seen Henry Fonda play kind of a, a persnickety guy before or a guy who was a little, a little, uh, I don't know, a little raw maybe, someone who who is not always nice all the time. He was not necessarily your dad. He might be doing the right thing, but he might give you a hard time while it happened. But this is the first time I think the world had seen him as a real son of a bitch. The one word kind. So like, it's just, that's just the kind of guy he's playing. So Owen Thursday is 
just this really tough, arrogant, impossible-to-like person. And he is constantly believing himself in the way of that tweet about how does this affect me, the protagonist of reality. He just really believes he's the protagonist of reality. And it's this very strange thing to see from, from Henry Fonda, who you think about him from the Grapes of Wrath, and he's like, whenever a cop is beating up a guy, I'll be there. And the guy he's playing here is nothing like that at all. Um, he's someone who would not even turn around much, uh, so much as like lift a, lift a hand to help in that scenario. So he is this, this very difficult, ornery person who always misreads the situation into believing that it's about him. So he thinks in the beginning of the movie that he's supposed to be getting an escort to be taken to his new post. The escort's actually for a new lieutenant who's there. Uh, they didn't know that Thursday was coming. Uh, later on, there's a dance that goes on, and this, this is really an outstanding moment, but there's a dance going on at the outpost, and he eventually gets to the point where he says to John Wayne, then I take it this dance is not in my honor. And, and uh, John Wayne says, no, it's a birthday dance. And Owen Thursday takes the bait. And he says, whose birthday is it? And John Wayne says, General George Washington. And that's the, that's the kind of person he is, who is always going to get tripped up on that, who is always going to be sort of roped into that, that moment where people are going to make him feel small, which is the thing he hates the most. Um, the way that it's it's acted up a little bit is that he has... This is a terrific supporting cast. It's got a lot of the John Wayne... Or John Wayne. It's got John Wayne. It's got a lot of the John Ford regulars. So Pedro Armendariz is in here. Ward Bond is in here. Victor McLaughlin is in here. A lot of people who we know and love from, from other John Ford movies. Um, but it also has Shirley Temple who at this point is a young woman, and she is ludicrously charming. She is just, like, very, very cute and very funny and spunky, and it's it's just fun to watch her in this setting. And the fact that she is playing Henry Fonda's very, very fun daughter when he is playing this terrible human being is very exciting. I don't think I ever would have thought of Shirley Temple and John Ford together. <laughs> it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because the two of them are not like exactly a match made in heaven, but this was at the time when Shirley Temple was really making a go of it um, as a as a leading lady, or at least a supporting character in, in serious movies. Or, I don't know. I'm not going to call The Bachelor and the Bobby Sox or a serious movie, but like she was, she was being cast across from... Uh, Fonda and, and Cary Grant and people like that. So it, I know it's, I've always, like, before I started watching stuff, I always sort of assumed she, like, disappeared into the ether the moment she hit puberty or something, but she <laughs> kept acting, and she's really good at this. She also plays someone named Philadelphia. There's a good joke in there in there, but I'm not gonna, like, in the movie about why that's her name, but I can't recall it because it would take way too long to explain. <laughs> I think I need to watch it just to figure out what that is now at this point. <laughs> it's it's a it's a real it's a shaggy dog story if ever there were one. Um, so the the Thursday character in this movie 
is also very interesting because I think part of part of the the Fonda experience I think is the idealism. He's always playing these idealistic people, and and Thursday is not not idealistic, but his idealism is just white supremacy basically. Um, so the end of this movie is fascinating. Because I can, I really can't think of a lot of other movies, if any, from the 40s, where the Indians win. Like, the last battle is fought in this movie, and it's basically Custer's last stand. And the, the Thursday character, the last we, we see of him, like, he's struggling to stay on a horse, he's been wounded, he's not in control of the situation, he dies on the field... Like it's it's a it's a very bleak ending, um, except for the fact that you're not supposed to feel bleak about it. Like it's it's interesting because you are supposed to pull, I think, for and not just like me sitting here in 2020, but I think the audience in 1948 is meant to feel like, well, this is what happens to you when you break your word and when you don't act up to the responsibility of your office. It's a very very interesting ending. And that's even before the prefiguring of the man who shot Liberty Valance. But again, I'll gush about it later. It's, I don't know, I'm thinking of it in terms of happening right after World War II. And just the political valence of this is what happens when you abdicate your responsibility. And how much it took for the U.S. to get involved in that war. And then how incredibly well they spun it in like a couple months. And, and Ford is, I, I, I said I wasn't sure what happened between 39 and 48 for him to change his mind about race, but like at the same time, no, I do. He was, he was at yeah. World War II, he shot the documentary about the Battle of Midway, he was at Normandy, uh, Normandy Beach for D-Day. Like, he, he was in the war um, doing documentaries and photography for the, for the Army, so it's, or the Navy rather. He would punch me if he heard me say the army. He was a yep. very proud Navy man. But, like, he, he really... And, and I, I, the experience changed him in a lot of ways. It changed a great many people involved in that war. Um, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it feels obvious, but that's because it's so true. But even, right, all the theorists and, you know, the literary figures that... We worked with in college, some that I'm still working with, like World War II and the Holocaust is just a breaking point for so many realms of art in particular. And anyone involved in that, it's a fundamental shift in just outlook. And right, so it, it kind of makes sense that, like, oh, that's what would make you rethink, I don't know, maybe the humanity of a certain demographic of people. <laughs> And, and Ford also always had a thing for the underdog, and that's something from his bio that I think is really important, in which I've never, I've never quite seen stated plainly in any of the stuff I've read about him. But he, um, the, the three causes that he's very sympathetic to in his westerns, he's very sympathetic to the Irish. Uh, Ford thought of himself as an Irishman, even though he was born here. Uh, he's one of those. Um, and his movies in the thirties are very sympathetic to the IRA. There are multiple John Ford IRA movies. Um, and, and they're very sympathetic to that side of the cause. His Westerns and, uh, cavalry movies very frequently feature at least one Confederate, one ex-Confederate who's now in the cavalry. 
very sympathetic to them too, um, which is not terrific. But he he definitely has a thing for the underdog. He likes the little guy. He roots for the little guy, and he likes losing causes, um, which is there's a level of romanticism in his portrayal of Native Americans, but I don't feel that in Fort Apache. Um, those that the performance there feels. I mean, they're not like the main characters or anything, but they they feel relatively lived in. They're not they're not jokey. Uh, they're not made up. They're they're fairly serious depictions, um, and that's one of those movies where you get that from him. That sort of underdog vibe of we pull. I mean, it's American, I guess, to to pull for the side that doesn't have much of a chance. No. <laughs> Uh, sorry, there's a, a TED Talk forming in my head, but we don't have time for that. Um, I'm curious with Milk if you're going to go the playing against type for Sean Penn or for Gus Van Sant. <laughs> Gus Van Sant is so confusing. <laughs> and I'm not... <laughs> Gus, oh my god, I could go on for Gus on Gus Van Sant for a while. Um, no, I was, I was going to say this is, this is unusual for Sean Penn. Um, I chose Milk because it actually reminds me a lot of James, excuse me, of James Cagney, uh, winning for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Um, Sean Penn has always been a very serious actor, I think. Um, not, not someone who I've like followed through the years with the sort of devotion I've followed other people, but like you see him and stuff and you're like, oh no, he's, he's going for it. Like this is a genuine actor. He tries very hard. The guy is personally insane. Like, a truly certifiable human being, and we'll get there. But, like, this is, you can't say that he's not working very hard at his craft. This is a, a very serious yeah. performer. The way that I think Cagney was a very serious performer and really, really worked hard at things. Um, and like, like Cagney won for playing against type, uh, won his Oscar. Sean Penn got his second Oscar in five years for, for playing Harvey Milk in the biopic Milk which on my funnier days, I think is maybe the last good biopic ever made. I don't literally think that, but there are days when I do. Um, the reason that that movie is okay. I'm about to Wittgenstein this again. There are two reasons yeah. why <laughs> yeah. there are two reasons why this is a great movie. And the first reason is because the screenplay is plagiarized basically from the Randy Schiltz book about Harvey Milk called The Mayor of Castro Street and from the Rob Epstein documentary The Times of Harvey Milk, which are both outstanding. And I have read the book and I've seen the movie and I watched Milk having seen both of those. Like, I've watched Milk, I don't know how many times in my life. It's got to be 12 to 15 viewings at this point. Um, but I hadn't, I hadn't seen it with those two texts in mind until recently. And when I saw it, I'm like, um, excuse me, how did you, did you, did you like forget how to do parenthetical citations? <laughs> like that movie is so dependent on those two. And if you're going to plagiarize two things, you should plagiarize those. Those are terrific. Um, but the movie is great for that reason. And it's a great movie, too, because it's not really a, all about the, uh, the central performance, which we'll definitely get to. But the reason this, this movie has always stuck out to me is because it sees, it sees the world through Harvey Milk 
and his cause and everything like that, but it also is very focused on character foils. How much he is so similar to a lot of these other people, except for, like, these other small key things, which, of course, make all the difference. And in this movie, he's got three really good foils. Uh, he's got Scott, played by James Franco, before we knew that was a problem. Um, and Scott is, like Harvey, an activist, someone who cares very much about gay rights. Uh, but where Harvey eventually says things like, we're going to take people out of the closet if they don't come out of the closet by themselves. Scott says things like, you can't make people do that. They still have, they still have their own agency, their own right to privacy. Uh, Harvey says that there's no privacy in the movement, etc. But like, it's a fundamental difference that Harvey eventually goes all in on it and Scott still wants a life. Whether that means, I mean, in, in, in fairness, it means primarily that he wants, like, a home life, which Harvey can't give him and won't give him, and that's why he loses Scott in the movie. So that's the first one. The second one is Cleve, played by Emile Hirsch, in a terrific performance. Like, I don't know, after this in Speed Racer, Emile Hirsch should have been, and Into the Wild, which I've not seen, but people say good things, like, between those three, should have been a huge star, and he just isn't. Oh, Speed Racer. Uh, my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Speed Racer is one of the movies which I did not put on this list because Matt would just pick it. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. He wouldn't ask. I'm being funny. Maybe. I'm also not being funny because it's not one of the movies I've set up here. So Speed Racer, uh, Into the Wild, and Milk should have made Emil Hirsch huge. Um, and as Cleve, he's playing someone who who has the same kind of passion that Harvey does, but he he doesn't have the charisma. So there's this great scene where where Cleve is trying to like lead a, a protest that's on the verge of becoming a riot and he's got like half a legal pad out in front of him trying to like read a speech. And these people are just not listening to him and when they eventually get to Harvey he gets them into the spirit better than Cleve could. Uh, but Cleve has the same like boundless energy. And then, of course, the final foil is Dan White, who is played by Josh Brolin in this movie. Um, and and who's another person Matt loves. So. Josh Brolin, man, that guy has had a career. He is so good, and I don't know, like, like I know people respect him, but I feel like it's never enough. No, this I I think. Truly, we're like people are just like, oh, Josh Brolin, he's really good, as opposed to, oh, Josh Brolin, he's one of the best actors of his generation. Yeah. He's he's a really special performer, and he, as Dan White, he's really good. Um, Dan White, of course, is the ex supervisor who resigns and then murders Harvey Milk and the mayor George Moscone um, in a in a fit of rage which his lawyer said was based on Twinkies. And, I mean, I mean, San Francisco was nuts in the 70s, but he, as, as Dan White, he's this fascinating, somehow brooding, but also all of his emotions are always at the surface all the time. Like, you always know what he's thinking, which I think is a very challenging thing for an actor to do because it requires acting everything all the time. It's, it's a tough, tough role. 
Um, but like Harvey, he, um, he wants to see change brought to San Francisco. He wants things to be different in his city. He has a very strong bond with the city. He cares a lot about the community. The difference between them is that Harvey Milk is a good politician and Dan White is not. And you might also say that the difference between them is that Harvey Milk is a decent human being and, and Dan White is an assassin. But that seems, that seems a little too, too on the nose. Um, I think the movie is much more interested on the whole in the fact that Harvey is capable of tying together politics and his beliefs in a way that Dan is just not. That Dan just constantly fumbles uh, any kind of political momentum he has. And that's what makes this movie really special for me. Um, it's, it's not just it's got a great performance, but it has four great performances that are all revolving around one single performance uh, and one single character, which is tough to do. Like, I, I joke about the plagiarism thing, but that's a difficult tightrope to walk as a screenwriter, and Dustin Lance Black's screenplay is, is terrific. Yeah, like, it's... I will say it's really on the nose in terms of what it's borrowing, but to make it work still is its own game, and, like, it doesn't matter what you're plagiarizing, that can't make it work in a different medium for you. So there's... <clears throat> This is just an impressively acted movie. It's got a tur- it's the cast is is so great. Um, something which I think is very very cool about the cast, and I usually hate this, and this is why I think it's cool because I usually hate it, and in this case I love it. But everyone in this movie kind of looks like the person they're playing. Like <laughs> I think that's one of the most overrated, awful things that biopics do is they're like. Oh, we have put this person in the right wig. Like, no, who cares? It's about it's about the performance, not about like how much. And I realize as I'm doing this, I'm making fun of Meryl Streep again, and I'm not trying to make this a bit. But like, the biopic is is such a stupid genre, and it's made even stupider by like the oh, we have so much authenticity. He talked to this guy's grandpa. Like, there's a certain level of actual performing that still has to be done, but I think it's very, very interesting that they got people who really do look like the real people, and, like, some time in the makeup trailer, yes, with wigs and everything, like, amps it up, but, like, you see a picture of Emile Hirsch with a young Cleve Jones, and you're like, ugh. <laughs> like, that's the that's the I, Nick Cage vampire thing right there. Yeah. I'm just glad your cultural tastemaker sounds like Absalom in the animated version of Alice in Wonderland. I'll take it. I'm not going to reject what's good. Um, <laughs> no, very good. I don't mean that as an insult at all. <laughs> so, I'm talking about this as the Sean Penn thing, and um, the first time I think I ever heard of Sean Penn, I was reading, <laughs> I was reading Doonesbury, which is how I learned about a lot of things for the first time, but this is like a Doonesbury from the 80s or something, where Sean Penn is mostly talked about as the guy who beat up a photographer while he was dating Madonna. And for better or worse, that has stuck as my sense of what kind of human being he is. Because he's insane. <laughs> Maybe up until the point where he interviewed El Chapo, where I was just like, Sean Penn? Him? <laughs> he's the guy doing this? Do you remember that happening? I actually, I actually almost forgot about it. Like, I was looking at Sean Penn's bio, and I'm like, Oh yeah, he talked to El Chapo because he's 
qualified? Uh, I remember that happening, and I have the same reaction now that I did then, and it's just, why? I can't, I, I can't believe this guy's not dead. I mean, that's part of my Sean Penn thing. It's like... I mean, the, the memories, to me, of Sean Penn are hearing about the... Just dating Madonna and then the photography incident, yes. which is just crazy. The El Chapo thing, which is, what are you doing? <laughs> Him just being absolutely off-the-wall baddie. Milk and fast times at Ridgemont High. I mean, that's the syllabus. Yeah, like that. that's how I know Sean Penn. And he has all this wonderful work in between all of that. But he is so, let's say, good at having just these weird moments that make his life seem... I don't know. He's just operating somewhere else from the rest of us, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the descriptions I've read of him are that, like, he seems chill, but also he's clearly a maniac. Right, like, he may be chill most of the time, but he has these incredible outbursts, and when you can guide that to the screen, it's very good, but when that happens in, in real life, then... Yeah, no, that's that's the problem. So, I, I, I will grant this, is that James Cagney talking about him playing against type in Yankee Doodle Dandy, we're talking about star image. And Henry Fonda playing against type in Fort Apache, that's star image. And Sean Penn playing against type in Milk is not really a star image thing. It's a personal branding kind of thing. It's not It's not cinematic anymore. And I'll grant that that, that makes this sort of odd. But at the same time, Sean Penn is definitely the, you know, the mustached photographer punching crazy dude and he is playing someone who i think has that same kind of energy and i don't mean that as harvey milk went out and beat people up in his spare time but like the same kind of like weird wizard energy that just sort of sucks people in and makes people want to know what you're going to do next because there's something inherently theatrical and interesting about you i think he's channeling that for harvey milk he's also playing I mean, he looks different. He just looks totally different. Part of it's the hair, but he's he's slimmed down an awful lot for the role. Um, you know, slim without necessarily being, like, super toned. Um, he His muscles seem loose. Like, every now and then, Harvey Milk in this movie sort of, like, waves his fist around in a way, and I'm like, it's like, like if he does that too much, it's going to fall off his body. Like, he just seems totally calm in his in his muscles like all of his muscles are relaxed while he's doing this very interesting pitchy voice which i don't usually associate with harvey milk but there is definitely like this interesting um idiolect that he's got for for the milk performance so it's it's very different from what one usually expects from him because again if you're used to him from the news like it sounds like the two of us are used to him from the news um yeah, he he comes off as a totally different person, and of course, in Milk, he's playing someone who is visionary and and serious, but also very very funny. Um, I think part of there's a reason this line made it in the trailer. The one about um, where where Dan asks him, "Can two men have a family?" and or two men conceive or whatever, and Harvey looks at him and says. 
No, but God knows we keep trying. And every time, it just like I just sort of smile a little bit. It's a great delivery. It's funny, and that's like kind of the the Harvey Milk thing that he does in this movie. It's just really wonderful deliveries, really sharp humor, um, and in a very good physical performance as well. I, I like that way of looking at Milk and of Sean Penn in particular, and. I just Googled him to look at, like, some still images. And even if you look at him, it's like... I mean, it looks like he could be fairly chill, but you're, like, two seconds from him just snapping your neck if you say the wrong <laughs> thing. And, like, playing Milk is just... I don't know, maybe he had that sort of charisma in Fast Times, but that's a different sort of movie and proposition altogether. And, like... Right, Mystic River is already is already out, and like I assume he's playing himself in that movie. What's that, Mystic River? I assume he's playing himself. Oh yeah, but I'm saying like that's already (laughs) out. Like we know him, we know kind of his, we know what he's capable of. (laughs) He had it in him, so to speak. Yes. Um, but yeah, I like that. Just like playing this role is him and not him at the same time in really interesting ways. And I think that layering is, is really cool and a, and a fun way to look at the movie itself. I, I keep, this is a movie that I've, I've loved for a very, very long time now. And as, as we get further away from it, it's, it's very difficult to separate it from the, uh, the Obama candidacy, you know, the fact that hope is on all the Obama posters, that incredible piece of graphic design, but also the fact that the movie ends and like the big thing that sort of goes to the movie is that line, you got to give them hope. And of course that's, that's tied right at the hip. Um, and of course you can look back at the Obama years, however you want, but it's hard not to look at them with a little bit of, um, Oh, misgiving is the word I'm going to use knowing how that ended sort of a a definite misgiving. And I think it's also very interesting um, to watch this as well, especially when people are trying very hard to make sure that performers match the person they're playing in some way. And Sean Penn, as we've talked about, is this deeply hetero human being um, playing maybe, I don't know, maybe the the most famous gay politician in the history of the country. Um, even with people who are alive right now, I, I think he might be number one. Uh, and the people around him are being played by straight people. Um, it's not something I actually have a problem with. And I think I would have to change the way I look at this to have more of a problem with it. Um, something I, for, for like gay and lesbian performances or bisexual performances, that's such an interior thing that it requires acting to bring it out anyway, uh, in the same way that I don't necessarily need everyone playing a devout Protestant on screen to be a devout Protestant. It's just one of those things that's like, it's it's in you, and it's up to the actor to bring that out. Like, there are other things, like, for me, trans roles should go to trans actors and actresses. Like, to me, that seems much more important. But that doesn't bother me yet. Maybe it will in future viewings. I... Yeah, that's a whole another podcast, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sh- that'll come up later, I'm sure, as we talk about 
representation on and on through these episodes and in terms of who's getting picked for things. I think the conversation of who gets picked is a much more important one. Right. I think that's a significantly more important question than whether or not it's right for Sean Penn to have done it. If they had picked somebody else, I think who was, it was homosexual. I think that would have been well and good, but I don't know that it would have changed the performance. I'm also, it's it's that question of like, Sean Penn can take this and do very good work with it, but did the casting director even look at actual gay men for that performance? Um, Or, you know, who's actually getting into the call room? That's, I mean, that's the important thing is who gets into the room in the first place is the, is the key thing. Um, The, the thing that I think is also very important is that Gus Van Sant, who is gay, uh, comes to this as one of the key directors of the queer new wave and the, in the early nineties or uh, late eighties. Um, so for me, that's, he has the bona fides to kind of do more of what he wants. And I think the fact that he is, he's gay and is out is, is an important part of the authorship of the movie. Um, I think, I think it would feel different if it were straight actor, straight actor, straight actor, straight director, etc. I think so too. You have that, uh, at least that creative force behind it that um, right is of that demographic and can speak to that community and sort of interiority more. Even if it's still Sean Penn giving the performance, there's at least some bit of the leadership that is non-hetero. There is, um, and, and Vincent does a lot of things to, to sort of make sure we get that. There's a lot of uh, home video. There's a lot of archival footage. Um, there's a lot of newsreel footage. There, there are a great many things that he does, I think, to make sure that it's got the perspective of, of other gay men from the 70s in San Francisco and not just Sean Penn or Emile Hirsch or what have you uh, playing a role like it's Masterpiece Theater or something. Like, I think he, he works very hard to contextualize it to this particular time and place. So, are you ready for me to pick? Yeah, yeah, I am. Thank you. I'm I'm curious, and I have gone on multiple tangents here, so it is probably best that we settle this one down. We'll reference people back to this one when we get back to a John Ford episode. (laughs) I think we Um, might be forced to, because there are are four more John Ford episodes coming up at this current current, uh, uh, setup. And not to spoil anything, but I think at least two of them are up against the same director. Okay. That director <laughs> kinda... being Spike Lee. Oh. I'm <laughs> two of my two of my favorites, two people I love very dearly, two people who are so different. Let me put it this way. I am very excited to hear you talk about those two together. <laughs> it's going to be really something. <laughs> it's what I got. This one. I think there's a, a really compelling case for both. And it's fun to hear about a John Ford movie that I was not familiar with before this. And especially thinking about that just in the historical context of this is... I doubt the first major one after World War II, but being so close to the end of that and sort of the shifting priorities cinematically, ideologically, um, and read just what Henry Fonda gets out of that too. Um, so I, I like that layering of 
playing against type for both director and lead actor, I think is really interesting. But I am going to go with Milk here. All right. Because I, I'm really compelled by that, that sense of Sean Penn playing against... Like, his reality, in a way. Like, how we know him outside of performances. And that we never doubted him as a serious actor. But this role being kind of at the same time of him, but a new him. And that he was able to take on this more empathetic role, in a way. Um, I, I, like, the, new, the nuance there is really interesting to me. Slightly more than the, like... Right, these are definitely two roles against type, and it's really interesting what they're doing, and they do it in good ways. But just kind of all that's wrapped up in fiction and reality with both the man, Harvey Milk, and with Sean Penn, and with so many people involved in this. So, you want to hear something interesting? Yes, I do. All right. So, through three episodes, <laughs> I have picked your first one every time. And you have picked my second one every time. Why is that? <laughs> I don't know, but that's really interesting. And I'm looking ahead at future episodes. I mean, if it, if it holds up, this is going to be fascinating. So. I... <laughs> Let me... Okay, so obviously I haven't heard your, your cases for any of the future ones yet, so I can't actually call this. I'm just looking at the next episode and saying, I am predisposed to pick the second one again. <laughs> All right. All right. I'm looking, oh. I'm looking forward to making the cases for that one, if that's a... I, I mean, I look forward to all of these, obviously, but that one feels, feels especially interesting to me. I'm interested in that, too. And then after that, honestly, I don't know that I have a clear front runner in any until episode... 11 maybe oh my okay so that's that's also good to know so you you kind of not necessarily a blank slate but you kind of have openings with a lot of these all right that's good to know uh, but i we will also see if uh if i keep picking the first one and you keep picking the second we'll, we'll see how far we can take that i'm excited the, the next one for me is gonna be it's a weird combo and it came I don't know. It was a sudden swell of, oh, I should do that. Oh, this is going to be deeply odd. <laughs> All right. So to recap for this episode, uh, which replaced the title Sign of the Times and Yankee Doodle Dandy, Matt offered up in the topic of artists where he refuses to make analogies for them. Uh, he offered up David Bowie's album Black Star and Joni Mitchell's album Night Ride Home. I chose the former. And in the category of playing against type, where Yankee Doodle Dandy was the original title, I offered up the subtitles of Ford Apache by John Ford and Milk by Gus Van Sant, and Matt has chosen Milk, which is something he cannot do in his real life. No, this is the deep irony of my life, including living in Wisconsin, where... Uh, <laughs> um, do we want to give the people a, a preview of what's to come? Alright, I can do that. So, this is just a teaser to keep everyone interested and involved, and we did this in the intro episode anyway, but just in case you don't remember or want to hear again, next next entry we're going to be talking about Discovery, the Daft Punk album from 2001, and Tim will be talking about Blade Runner. 
which I think much more people know than Discovery. And <laughs> I really feel like we should end on that, but I'm going to keep talking. Um, we have to do it so people know I didn't have a stroke mid-episode. I think that's yeah, important. Uh, that's how we're going to... That's just how you need to start the next episode. <laughs> I can't, I honestly can't wait. That movie has the best opening. Yeah. Um, and for Daft Punk, I'll be talking about We Got to Funk, which is just a pun on one of their songs, but I'll be talking about uh, punk incorporated into unexpected genre mashups, perhaps. <laughs> and before all these moments are lost in time, like tears and rain, uh, we'll be talking about what it is to be human again, which is so important to Blade Runner, um, and talking about movies in which trying to become human again is is not a metaphorical thing like it is in Blade Runner, but a very literal plot point. This has been Subtitles. Thanks for t tuning in, and we'll see you next time. I didn't have a stroke.